1: Welcome back to New Books in Islamic Studies. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Where does love come from and where will it lead us? Throughout the years, various answers have been given to these questions. In Divine Love Islamic Literature and the Path to God, published with Yale University Press in 2013, William Chittick responds to these queries from the perspective of the rich literary traditions of Islam. He reveals how some Muslims explain the origins, life, and goal of love through a detailed investigation of authors writing in Persian and Arabic mainly from the 11th to 12th centuries. For these authors, love is manifest through the relationship between God and creation in all its various iterations. Commentary and explanations are drawn from numerous sources beginning with the Quran, but most extensively from Rashid Din Mayburi's Quran Commentary Unveiling of the Mysteries, and Ahmad Samani's Repose of the Spirits. In our conversation, we discussed the role of the Persian-Muslim tradition, the cosmological roles of Adam and Muhammad, the centrality of the heart and the spiritual psychology, states and stations, the macrocosm and the microcosm, and suffering of separation, among many, many other things. This conversation was especially interesting for me since Dr. Chittik was one of my first teachers in Islamic studies. I'm grateful for him to making the time to talk to me about his new book for New Books in Islamic Studies. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Dr. Chittick. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. This is really a wonderful book, and uh, I, I appreciate all the hard work you've, you've done with this. You've given us a great example of how to produce scholarship in a very rich and detailed way, but also in a very well-written way. So, so thank you for, for this wonderful book. Before we get into some of the contents, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your background in Islamic studies, how you got interested in the subject, moments in your life that were influential and kind of leading you down this trajectory.
0: Well, it's it's a long story. Uh, (laughs) Just to make it very brief, uh, I took a junior year abroad at the American University of Beirut. This was long before there was any war in Lebanon, so it was seemed to be a good opportunity to get out of uh, Ohio, where I was going to college, and uh, have a private beach on the Mediterranean, which is what I had read about the American University of Beirut. I was a history major, so I decided I would better take some courses on Middle Eastern history. That seemed, you know, what I should be doing there, rather than more courses on American and European history. So I took a couple of courses on Islamic history. I had to do an independent project while I was away, and so I just ended up, because it was the one thing that interested me uh, in the book that we were reading on the history of Islam, I ended up doing a paper on Sufism. One thing led to another, so uh, I went back, finished my B.A., and then went off to Tehran, Knowing because I wanted to learn Persian so I could read Rumi in the original basically, and uh, spent how many years? Eight years it took me to finish my PhD at Tehran University. And by the end of that time, I had mastered both Arabic and Persian, uh, Arabic, classical Arabic, anyway. And so, then uh, when the revolution came along, uh, we got out. Uh, and uh, by that time, I was married. We got out, came back to this country, and eventually ended up teaching at Stony Brook.
1: Now, um, you've written a, a number of wonderful books. Uh, could you talk a little bit about kind of the uh, impetus for writing this book? How, how did this book uh, begin to emerge as a project for you?
0: Well, I've always been interested in the the topic of love. The uh, one of the first things I translated into English was uh, a classic, a Persian prose classic on love by Iraqi, Fakhraddine Iraqi, a 13th century author, School of Ibn Arabi. So this appeared in, I don't know, 1970, uh, was it published? Uh, no, 81, I guess, something like that. And then uh, at the same time, I'd already written a a little book on Rumi and I wanted to uh, do some more on Rumi. And so I sat down. I was back from uh, Iran without a job, uh, living in my mother's house. Fortunately, she had a big house. She was happy to have us share. So I sat down and read Rumi from cover to cover, I mean, all of his poetry, you know, which is altogether 60,000 verses, plus his prose works, and took notes. This was before computers, and put together my file cards and sat down and wrote a book called The Sufi Path of Love, published in 83. And that still is, you know, it sells, I don't know, 500 copies a year. And a lot of people tell me it's the basic Uh, resource if you want to know what Rumi is talking about, well that is the book to look at to see what exactly his teachings are. Anyway, so love has always been in the background of my interests and uh, recently it just occurred to me for various reasons, again there's a story there but I won't get into it that love would be a a good project to uh, propose to the National Endowment for the Humanities that is sort of a history of of uh, Islamic thought about love. And so I made a proposal to NEH. I received uh, the fellowship, so I got a year off from teaching to carry out the research. And I just sat down and started reading a bunch of books that I'd always wanted to read carefully, the books I knew about, looking for material on love. My original idea was to cover uh really the whole Islamic history and and bring selections right down into the nineteenth century. Uh but I just came up with so much interesting and fascinating material from the early periods. Material that people basically have not been paying attention to that I decided I had to cut it off at the year thirteen hundred. So uh I had, you know, I, I, the material I had gathered in, included an awful lot from the uh, excuse me, the year 1200. Uh, I gathered an awful lot from the 13th century. Like the, in Ibn Arabi himself is a yeah. tremendous resource on, on the topic of love. And then Rumi, of course. Attar. when you look at the Persian poetry, there's an awful lot of material. But I left all that out because it's slightly late, and because I found that, that all of the basic issues that are discussed in the later literature, especially the 13th century, which is probably the most famous uh, century for people who are interested in the topic of love. Let's see, Persian poetry, love poetry, Rumi, of course, is, your, is, the, is the big name. Everything that these pe- people are saying in the 13th century has basically been said in the 12th and 11th and 10th century, but scholars have then not looked at it. So uh, uh, that... I got the raw material with a year of research and then just sat down, rearranged everything in in a logical prediction, uh, a logical direction, and put it together and, of course, added my own comments and my own interpretations and introduction and whatnot.
1: Could you talk a little bit about... Um how you approach a book? Because I, I think you, from conversations we've had in the past, I think you, uh, kind of your process might be different than some other authors. So could you talk just briefly about, you know, you, ha, when you're going through the material, how do you...
0: Yeah, well, generally, into- of course, I, yes, uh, generally part I follow my own interest, And usually if I'm thinking about a book, I'm thinking about, all right, this book should present this or that. For example, my two big books on Hebrew and Arabic and also the book on Rumi and other books that that I've written that basically follow the same process. I have a vague idea of what I want to say, but then I sit down, collect material, basically by translating it, because until you have it in English, you really don't know what you have. Something might look beautiful in Persian or in Arabic. You translate it, you see, no, it doesn't work. It needs too much uh, explanation. For example, something else may look, uh, you know, sort of dry and not very interesting. But let's see what we have. You translate it. Oh, it works beautifully in English. So, it, in this sort of book, I translate everything that strikes my attention, and especially the the things which uh, pertain to the particular issue which I'm trying to explain and. In this last book, of course, Love was was the focus. And But my eventual idea is to let the text speak for themselves. I don't want to impose my view on them. All right, here's my topic. What do you say about my topic, the topic that I have chosen? And then let the text explain uh, how this goes in their own words. In order to do this, of course, you have to begin with introductory basic issues that are often taken for granted by the uh, authors of the books and by their original readers, but which the Western audience is just not familiar with. So a lot of the, the material I may be you know, heading in a, in a given direction, but I offer a lot of explanation in the beginning. And the explanation I try as much as possible to put into the words of the authors themselves, so I
1: don't interfere now um, you focus on um, Arabic and Persian works, and you talk um, throughout the book here and there about kind of the differences that are happening in the type of types of texts that are written both in Arabic and in Persian. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about kind of the the patterns um, in the explanation of Islamic ideas um, that we see. Uh, kind of the differences between Arabic and Persian works. P- perhaps, uh, I think you mentioned a couple places, the audiences would be different, uh, perhaps, for Persian works. Um, a- accessibility, uh, the types of uh, concrete imagery versus abstraction that happen in these two types of works. Can you can you just talk about kind of the nature of the yes. text in Arabic sure. and Persian?
0: Well, the first thing you have to remember is that scholars writing for scholars wrote in Arabic. Now, this this was, this was true throughout the Islamic world, you know, for centuries. So you have books written in India, let's say, in the 15th century in Arabic. Why are they being written in Arabic? Because they're writing for other scholars, scholars who may live in Iran or in Arab countries or in Indonesia. Well, they can't write in uh, their local languages. but so if Persian it's, it won't get back to the Arabs. You see, Everybody, a non-Arabic-speaking Muslim scholar, they know their own local languages. They know Arabic, right? But Arabs, Arab scholars very, very rarely know Persian or any other language. They're, They're quite satisfied with their Arabic. You know, that's the mother of Islamic languages. They figure they don't need the other languages. So that's one thing. If they're writing in Persian, there's also, there's already the issue who who they're talking to. They're not talking simply to scholars, although some of these books are quite difficult and a layman would have trouble with them. They're talking to a wider audience, people who don't know Arabic that well that they'd be able to. You know, read the text in Arabic. That's one issue. A second issue, which I think is very obvious, is that especially in texts having to do with spirituality generally, you know, what is commonly called Sufism, uh, that the early texts tend to be in the form of aphorisms. As in in many other fields, just like the Hadith literature, these are the collected sayings of the Prophet. In the Sufi literature, these are collected sayings of Sufi sheikhs, of teachers, of saints, and they're brought together under themes and topics, but there's no explanation, or very, very little explanation. In order to read a text like Al-Kosheiri, you know, the famous treatise of Al-Kosheiri, you really have to know a lot about Islamic thought before you can figure out exactly what they're talking about, because Mosheiri does not provide explanation. He simply quotes now, when he's got twenty different quotes on a single topic in one chapter, you get the idea of how these things work together. By the time of Al Ghazali, already writing in Arabic, of course, and in Persian, <clears throat> Al Ghazali's Arabic works are definitely addressed to the scholars. But he's going into a great deal more detail. He doesn't simply quote the aphorisms; doesn't simply quote the Quran and the Hadith. He goes. He explains himself, and here his training in philosophy and his training in theology shows itself very well, and also in sufism. In his Persian uh, works, which very often cover the same uh, topics, he still is much. He writes much more simply than he does in Arabic, even though the topic is the same. It leaves out a lot of the technical details. Also. Then some of the other works, which are being written at the same time. In Persian, because this is—it's the 12th century, where, uh, right, the year, be, the 10th century before Rumi, in which Persian literature really comes into its own. Not that there's isn't Persian before that, but the great, great scholars of, of Persian of, of 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 the various sciences are writing things like Quran commentary in Persian, and when they do so, they quote the aphorisms an explanation, but then they go into detail because they have to unpack the aphorisms. They have to explain, or they let the Hadith or the Quranic verse. They have to explain its meaning in simple, basic Persian. So the person not trained in the Islamic sciences will have a, a better sense of what's going on. So in this 12th century, and even more so in the 13th century in the Persian works, there's a tremendous amount of clarification going on, uh, Concerning the Arabic works, these people, these scholars who are writing things, are all thoroughly trained in Arabic. They know the the classic Arabic text extremely well. And they're uh, now writing in Persian for an audience that doesn't know the classical text very well, which is some Arabic, but not that much, and they have to explain it in some detail. You know, Ibn he says a very interesting thing, which I think helps you understand what's going on. In a couple of places, he, he remarks on the fact that his books are far more detailed than anyone who preceded him. There's no doubt about that, especially in the, the level that he's writing. And he says, why should this be so? It's because the earlier teachers knew all that stuff, but they did not see the need to explain it. He said, "In our day, people have forgotten all this. They they don't know. They don't understand anymore what's going on in the Quran. And therefore, God has given me the task of explaining it in detail, so people can understand what was what is implicit in the text, but which is not stated explicitly. I think the same thing is very obvious in the difference between Arabic and Persian texts, where." Persian, the Persian scholars are making explicit something which uh, is just n- not quite so explicit or is only implicit in the parallel Arabic
1: writings. Now, you, you deal with a number of texts in this, but um, there's a few that kind of take center stage. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the sources that you, you focus on for this book.
0: Well, there are basically two sources which do take center stage. And although, and I imagine they count maybe two-thirds of the quotations, I haven't done a numerical analysis, something like two-thirds of the quotations are taken from two specific texts. One of them is a, a very, is the first Persian Commentary on the Quran, at least from a Sunni, a Sunni Persian commentary. We have a, a Shiite Persian commentary from the, from the same century. It was it was it was begun in the year 11, 11 I don't remember the exact dates, like eleven twenty or something. You know, Al Ghazali died in eleven eleven, so right after the death of Al Ghazali, uh, the, the the author of this uh, commentary by the name of Mabody, Uh, It's a huge commentary, 10 volumes in the edition, but what what sets it apart from other commentaries is is that it's comprehensive. It It translates the Quran into Persian in one section. In the second section, it goes into detail about every single verse in the Quran. And in a third section, it talks about what the author calls the allusion, esharat, which is a common term in the literature, meaning the hidden implicit meanings which aren't obvious until, you know, you really ponder them, until you really advanced on the path towards God and you can see beneath the surface of the text. This is altogether, there are about 1,500 pages in this section of the book. The quotations, those people who are quoted, are typically great Sufi sheikhs. uh, People like Bayezid Bastami or Junaid, um, and it's it's beautiful Persian. It is just exquisite but in the language. I usually when I read this this sort of thing, I read it out loud because it's just delightful. It's very very sweet and very you know makes your mouth water sometimes. This is really a, a wonderful text, and although we have one study of it, sort of you know scholarly analysis of the book there has been very little uh, translation. So I translated, I went through that, those 1,500 pages, pulled out a lot of the material on love, and translated it all for my own use, and then chose the, the best parts of that for uh, the book, Divine Love. The other author, who is basically someone who's been completely ignored, by the Western literature, and only relatively recently rediscovered in Iran, uh, you know, in the, among uh, scholars of Persian, is someone called Samani, who is contemporary with Nabodi, the author of the Quran Commentary, uh, and he has a huge commentary on the names of God, the 99 names of God in Persian. And this is one of the great classics, if, if we just look at quality, all right. if we just look at quality of writing, the profundity of thought, this is one of the greatest classics of Persian literature. Uh, but it didn't enter the canon, which means that no one paid any attention to it. You know, the, the historians of Persian literature, when you look at how they barely mentioned the book. It only came to the notice of the scholarly community about 30 years ago when an Afghan scholar Najib Haravi who's residing in Iran, published the text. I came across it just about 30 years ago and was fascinated by it. I wrote a little bit about it. And so, uh, and I just, you know, for this project, I went through, Pulled out a lot of the discussion on love, and I just found it it works very, very nicely in English. And uh, the depth of the thought is really remarkable. And it's also, of all the prose works that I know, this is the closest to the style of Rumi. Even though it's prose, the the use of anecdotes, the use of Imagery and symbols, the, the beauty of the prose, this is, it's all very reminiscent of Rumi. So when you read this, you know you, you keep on recalling the Masnavi in particular, although the, also the uh, the the love poems. Um, and if you know someone asks me what was Rumi reading himself, oh well, we do know he was reading Ghazali. He mentions Ghazali, but I'm sure. Uh, Samaani was known to him. There are just too many parallels between Rumi's poetry and Semani's prose. So this is the second book. that, And I'm really happiest about this book in the sense that no one has paid any attention to this book before I started looking at it. And now I think uh, scholars are starting to realize this is an important source for Islamic theology and for Sufi teachings, one of them, certainly in Persian, probably the most important of the uh, 12th century, if we just look at the, you know, what he's saying and the quality of it, and uh, also on the topic of love, I consider this the greatest classic in Persian. on love, even though, of course, Persian scholars of Persian uh, beg to differ. Of course, they don't know Samani, but they ascribe that honor to Ahmed Ghazali, the brother of uh, Ghazali, the famous Ghazali, his little gem, Samani, which I use quite a bit in the book. But in terms of content, uh, first of all, length, uh, Samani's book on the divine names is 20 times as long as Ghazali's book on uh, love. And uh, in terms of the refunded thought, certainly they're, they're on uh, you know, they can be compared uh, very well. Simoni doesn't come out looking any less than his much more famous contemporary.:
1: Now, um, you structure the book around three questions, uh, which you, you set up in the beginning. Uh, so where does love come from? How can people live uh, live up to love in their everyday lives? And where will love take them in the end? And you call this the origin of love, the life of love, and the goal of love. Can you talk a little bit about um, h- how this structure works, what you're trying to get at? You know,
0: sure. Well, I'm it's a very logical structure, I would say. I mean, that's a question. That, okay, love. This is a word. <laughs> Everybody knows talking about it. And then they should go, well, How come? how come? We love. You ask, well, what is love? We don't know what love is. This is something the text comments. Everybody knows what love is. If you don't know what love is, you've lived a very, very, what? Deprived life. We've all experienced love in some form or another. Now, try to explain what that is. That's when you fall into difficulties. It's one of those things which really cannot be expressed in words. But like so many things which can't be expressed in words, that just makes people talk about it even more. You know, I think of the the analogy with Zen. They always say, Zen is about not talking. Well, how come all these Zen masters wrote all these detailed books about not talking then? Well, love is something like that. Uh, it It's of interest to everyone. It is basic to everyone's life. Where does it come from? You know, I mean, nowadays we look at this as a biological or a psychological question, evolutionary question, this sort of thing. Well, that's that sort of thinking is totally foreign, of course, to pre-modern civilizations, not least Islamic civilization. And so the origin of love must be struck, you know, must be built into the very nature of reality, and reality is just another name for God. So... That's one one of the things. The origin of love is going to be a theological discussion primarily, and an anthropological discussion. What is a human being, and how do human beings come to share in this question? So, where does love come from? That's where we are right now. Here we are. We have love. We recognize that it's all around us. We recognize that people don't live up to it. We recognize that it's it's, it's something great, something wonderful. What is it exactly? Where does it come from? So that's one issue. It's a great big topic in the text. You know, this structure, I only came up with it. This is a good example of how I write a book. I didn't start out with a structure. Once I had, oh, 1,500 pages of translated text, I, I classified it all of these texts under different categories, you know, specific categories. Then I classified the categories under general categories. But I came down, it was boiled down to three categories. Where is love coming from? How do you make use of love? How do you benefit from the fact that you're a lover? And finally, why should you go to the trouble of actualizing love? which is the goal of love, right? And it's very clear there are three basic issues going on in all the text. And as I've written, I, I mention it in the book, but I've also written it in some recent articles on love. The uh, if, if you, When you look at the text, you realize there are three basic sources, or rather scriptural sources, for and this sort of thinking, for these issues, are two Quranic verses which the text quote all the time, and there's one hadith, one saying of the prophet, which they also quote. If you look at the con- context of their quotations, you realize when they quote the first one, it's usually the first issue, the origin of love. When they quote the second, it's the second issue, the practice of love. When they quote the third it's the issue, is the goal of love. So these are the, you know, the scriptural uh, texts upon which the notion of love in Islamic thought is sort of built. Because, you know, the way Islamic thought thinking, there should always be a reference back to the Quran. You can't just uh, make it up. Now, what are these three t- sources? The three texts. The first one is very, very short. Yehibahum wa yehiboonahu. The Quranic verse. It's part of a Quranic verse. He loves them, and they love him. What exactly does this mean? You have just reams of writing on this particular particular verse. What exactly does this signify? He loves them. That is, God loves people. So God is a lover. And they, people, love him. They love God. People are lovers. People love him. So he is the beloved. God loves him. So they are the beloved. Both man and God are lover and beloved. And this, of course, is developed in a great deal of detail in various uh, directions. That's the first point. The second is the practice of, of how do you live the life of love? What is the chronic reference point here? There's a verse in which God addresses the prophet. He says, Say, O messenger of God, tell the people, if you love God, follow me and God will love you. Okay, here's the program. If you love God, that is, if suddenly you come to realize that you do love God, part of the first discussion is the fact that everyone loves God, whether they know it or not. Once you come to understand that, you say, Well, okay, I love God. What can I do? He loves me in return, but I, I don't see any fruit of this and anyway it certainly demands or any special fruit. I it certainly demands some sort of activity on my part, what do I do? You follow the prophet. So the second part is all about the Sufi path, what is called the Sufi path. Well, really it's the Sharia, that is the uh, the observance of the law, the tariqa, and the interiorization of the law, and the practices uh, having to do with the transformation of the human soul, the various states which people must go through, the various character traits that they should actualize in order to be worthy of God's love. Because if you go through this, uh, the promise is, if you love God, you know, follow me, God will love you. So following the prophet is sufficient reason. But of course, the following here, and this is an extremely important point, is not simply observing the letter of the law. That is the least of it. The real following is the internal transformation. And so, most of this second section of the book is about the internal transformation what goes on inside the human self that allows the human self to become worthy of God's love. And more than just the fact that God loves everything because He loves everything that He created, that's why He created it. Now, the third. Heart, the goal of love. The goal of love, it's obvious. You want to be together with your beloved. Clearly. So there are a number of different words which are used for this, like union. And lovers. What do lovers want? They want to be together. All right. So there are three chapters on uh the goal of love and the various discussions that go on. What How is that achieved? What happens? What exactly is the the result? How this is another way of talking about the issue of asserting divine unity, which is, of course, at the heart and the foundation of Islamic thought. How asserting one is not enough to say one. One has to become one. And to such an extent that there are not there are not two. In other words, it is a question of non duality. How does one achieve non duality? Now, there's also, as I said, a third scriptural reference point, which is most commonly cited in the context of this discussion, and that is this again a famous uh, a famous hadith in which uh, the Prophet Quotes God. It's not a long hadith, but the 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 part that uh, is particularly relevant to the discussion is, God says, uh, when you know my servant approaches me through doing good works, and how do you do that by following the prophet? Then I love him. Okay? So it's after going through the path, then God loves him, and God says, when I love him or her, as the case may be. Uh, There's no gender implication in these words. It's just a question of Arabic grammar and uh, the ease of (laughs) of translation. When I love him, I am the hearing with which he hears, the, uh, the eyesight with which he sees, the hand with which he holds, the feet with which he walks. This is an extremely explicit statement coming out of the mouth of the prophet about what exactly it means to achieve proximity with God, or you, union with God. So this is, these are basically the three themes of the book, the three themes, I would say, of Islamic literature on love. And uh, and part of the, the last theme, maybe I should add, is there's is a long sep- section of the book, one chapter of the book is on separation from God and suffering. I uh, thought, so what is the lover's problem? Why is it not always bliss to be in love? Why, in fact, could you say that lovers, people in love, suffer as much as they enjoy their state? It's because they're separate from what they love. They're not always together. So being separate from God is very, very basic to our human situation. And that demands pain. Rumi, you know, he talks about this a great deal. Those who are more aware have yellowers. Faces, right? I is, they're even they're sicker. Their hearts are sicker because of the pain of their separation. So uh, that's also a, a very big discussion uh, in the book, and it's again it ties in very closely to our human experience of love. The fact that whatever it is we love, what hurts about love is the fact that we don't have it or him or her, or whatever, you know, the object of love happens to be. And this is why, just because of this basic insight, you know, one of the things scholars of Arabic literature, scholars of Islamic history in general have noted, is the way the Sufis sort of expropriate all sorts of early love poetry, which has no mystical value, according to the authors of the books, the scholars. Well, who says it has no mystical value? Just because the the people who wrote the poetry were not necessarily mystics, to use a word that I hate, Uh, doesn't mean you can't read it that way. It's about, the poem is about the universal experience of love. The basic theme of Arabic love poetry, as the historians of Arabic literature will tell you, is separation from the beloved. Moaning and crying and weeping and wailing because she is on a pedestal and you can't get to her. Well, why wouldn't the Sufis take all this poetry over and just say, well, this is our human situation. Whether it's a woman we love, whoever a human being we love, or whether it's God, we're in the same situation. We don't have it. Therefore, we suffer
1: pain. Anyway, this is
0: some of the themes of the book.
1: Yeah. Now... um you both, both in the section on kind of the origins of love or narratives about the origins, um, and in this idea of suffering, you you talk a lot about Adam. Um, can can you tell us how Adam fits into this role of the discourses on love? Oh yes. Well, you have to remember that,
0: unless, especially Western readers, first when they first come across Islamic texts, they find this puzzling, because Adam, of course, is supposed to be the first sinner. And Adam was fallen, and we don't want to follow Adam, of course, uh, because then we'll be sinners. Now this, of course, is pretty alien to Islamic thought. Uh, Adam, in, in Islamic thought, is the first prophet. That is the first human being who achieved full perfection. As the father of all the prophets, and the father of all human beings, he is eminently worthy of emulation. Adam is someone you should try to uh, copy, do exactly as Adam did. There is that problem, of course, that he ate the fruit that was forbidden. So do we eat uh, the forbidden fruit? No, not exactly. That's not the way. So there. what happens, especially with both Samani and they do this, and there are other places, of course, lots of other places, but they do it so beautifully in Persian with a lot of detail, they simply point out that there's always something, you know, what seems to be a story of disobedience is surrounded by a lot of other issues. Notice that God when he's when he's creating Adam in the first place, he said, I am placing the earth a vice chariot Okay. You gotta tell us that he didn't know this vice chair uh, of his is prone to sinning, to forgetfulness? Of course he knew it. It's part of the program, it's part of the the package. The angels, of course, object. They say, what? Will you, will you place therein someone who will work corruption and shed blood? Right? This is all the, the first uh, creation story in the beginning of the Quran, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 30, those environments. And, of course, God says, yeah, I know he's going to work corruption and shed blood, but I know something that you don't know. So, obviously, some, God has something up his sleeve, There's something else going on. The angels are missing. People who look at Adam simply as a sinner are missing. There's a a great secret which allows Adam to be God's vice chairman. Basically, uh, especially when you take it from the perspective of love, the secret is that Adam was created for love. He was created... uh, by god's love for god's love adam was created as the single creature adam used it generically here of course because adam in arabic means not only adam the first man but adam the human being human being is a generic word for human being human beings were created to love god that is their raison d'etre there's no other purpose in human life but to learn how to love god so And one of the and love is a many splendid things. There there are many different dimensions to it. One is no lover uh, can appreciate his beloved without being separate from his beloved. Somebody makes this point. So a man is happily married to a woman and they get along fine and then something happens and and he never even thinks of being in love with her. And then, for some reason, they're separate, you know, many miles he goes on, whatever, and all he can do is think about his wife. He suddenly realized, I've been in love with my wife all the time. She's my passion. I'm always, you know, this. So what is, again, separation is what allows us to develop our love in its various dimensions. Now, given that Adam, the human being, was created in the image of God, And there, of course, is a big discussion about how all of the 99 names of God, that is, all the attributes and the qualities of God, are present in the human being. All of them need to be developed. All of them are the precursors of the beautiful character traits that God would like you to develop. Uh, All of these are present in the human being, and they can't be fully developed without love. And love is... Uh, because love is the dynamic which ties together lover and beloved. Lover, love is the energy through which lover and beloved come together. In the garden, when Adam was in the Garden of Eden, he was together with the beloved. God came and they would talk to each other. Well, down in the earth, he's far apart. He learns this secret of pain, of suffering, uh, and is, always has... God on his mind. So this is, and also is able to develop the various dimensions of uh, human character that can't be developed if you're always in a happy and easy state. As uh, again, a common discussion is that in the garden, the only thing uh, Adam experienced was God's mercy and compassion and bounty and benevolence, all of these so-called beautiful names of God. But God is more than that. God is also severe, wrathful, majestic, transcendent. Adam couldn't experience these in the garden. So he had to come down to earth and experience them. And those are the attributes of severity and of transcendence, which, of course, make people aware of their separation and their distance from God. And that intensifies the fire of love. And the fire of love, of course, again, is a common theme, very common theme. The, the purpose of the fire of love is to burn away attention to everything other than God. It's, a, it's, it's the fire of jealousy, as they often call it. God is jealous in the sense that he doesn't want you loving anyone else. So whatever it is that you love other than God will be burnt away by his jealousy, and eventually,
1: whether you want it or not, you'll be left with him alone. Now, in, in the second section of the book, um, the, the Life of Love, where we're basically traveling, traveling the path, um, you take us through um, their explanations of things like states and stations, ideas about uh, the idea of Dean, um, and ultimately this leads up to, uh, I think you call it a vision of God. Um. This this might sound striking to some people. This idea of a vision of God. Can you talk about like what this vision would be like? How do these authors explain the experience right. of, of of seeing God? Well, it, it, again, that's it's a bit like
0: love. It's not not <laughs> something that can be explained. But the background is clear enough. First of all, in general Islamic theology, it's only the more which, which which question the notion of vision of God right the, the vision of God which the Quran is apparently talking about very many verses seem to be talking uh, about it Ru- yeah is the uh, is the Arabic term this is you know a, a, a very basic uh, I would say reward the way the uh, text on theology talk about given to the believers in paradise all right the difference between the 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 perspective of kind of Asherite mainstream Asherite theology and the Sufi understanding is that the Sufis maintain that this there 's no reason you cannot well there are plenty of reasons, but it 's not impossible to experience the vision of God in this world now, what exactly that entails they don 't ex- you know go into any kind of details of what i although it happens in some uh, in some texts. Roosevelt Backley, for example, does have uh, a book that goes into detail on this. Uh, what's it called? Anyway, Karl Ernst translated it into English. And uh, there the are other people. But the, the text that I deal with, no, they didn't go into this. And someone like Samani, and also Nabody, they make this point on a number of occasions. The vision of God is in the capacity. Of the viewer you see God in your measure you can say that you're seeing God right now but since your measure is not you know, large enough for you to understand because your measure has a great deal to do with your understanding your recognition of the way things are your capacity is not great enough to for you to understand what you are seeing the whole notion of the self-disclosure of God, that God discloses himself through nature. You know, it's a very basic uh, Quranic idea, the signs of God, wherever you look, there's a sign of God, or the Quran says that wherever you look, there's a face of God. If you you have the eyes to see, then God is everywhere to uh, to be seen. So it's not, you know, as if your vision of God is going to be the same as my vision of God or the next person's vision of God. Rather, the vision of God is what we are aiming for, but it will be in our own measure. The famous saying of June 8 the, uh, the color of the water depends on the color of the cup. Right? which is used as analogy to explain exactly this issue. What will my vision of God entail? Well, who are you? What exactly do you entail? To what degree have you actualized the names and attributes of God that are present in your makeup because you are created in God's image? So it's a very individual vision, even though... uh, All great prophets and saints, according to Islam, share in it. And everyone in the last day and the the resurrection, all those who go to paradise anyway, will also uh, have this vision. But not in some sense where everybody sees exactly the same thing. There's an awful lot of discussion about how the vision will always be colored by the one who sees
1: now, um, in the final section, um, you're dealing with questions of how, how to overcome this separation, how to reunite with God, and a large part of this is this idea of, of poverty. Um, can mm-hmm. you tell us what, uh, what these authors have to say about poverty and recognizing right. our own poverty? Well, remember that poverty is a very basic
0: discussion in Islamic thought, in the Quran. And remember that uh, in the Islamic world generally, people who we tend to call Sufis never call themselves Sufis. They call themselves Fakir or Darish, the Persian, which is simply the Persian translation, but exactly the same word. Both of which means poor, right? Both mean poor, so... If you ask someone who's a member of a, you know, a Sufi order, let's say he's a Qadri or he's a Shazali or whatever, what are you? You know, what are you? I, I, I'm, a I'm a poor man or a poor woman, as the case may be. Now, where is this coming from? First of all, if you say I'm poor, I means I have nothing. I, I make no claims. I own nothing. Uh, I'm nobody. That's a really big claim, of course. Anyone can reach that stage, you know, they say he's reached the end of the path. The color of God is, you know, uncoloredness, as, as uh, Mabudi and others put it. Uh, so, poverty. And of course, it goes back to chronic usage as, you know, يَا يَا يَحَنَّاسِ أَن wallahu عَلَى اللَّهُ وَاللَّهُ هُوَلْكَنِهُ O people, you are the poor toward God. And God is the rich, the praiseworthy. What does this mean? Ontologically, cosmologically, it means everything comes from God. All wealth is in God's hands. All existence belongs to God. What we have is nothing of our own. So, to acknowledge one's own poverty is to acknowledge that one has nothing. One owns nothing. Whatever we have is alone. Uh, Whatever we have is about? Now why do they, uh, they always talk about annihilating the self, annihilating the soul, the ego? This is also a huge discussion in Sufi literature, precisely because this notion of self, I am, is a big mistake. It, 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 it It's, it's the, the implication that I own myself, I am myself, you know, something, whereas what the vision that comes to be achieved is that I am nothing. Nothing is there to make this claim. So this uh, idea of returning to non-being, where we came from. And of course, this is also tied into you know, famous terminology in Sufism. Uh, the Western literature has made a big uh, issue of fana on annihilation, uh, which is paired with Bara Subsistence. Well, these two terms, of course, are used in the in the in the text, but not very, not that often. Uh, there's no reason to give them a, to highlight them, especially. But they're well known terminology, and the and it's it comes from the, uh, Quranic verse, which you could say is also talking about, uh, poverty. It says everything in the face of the earth is annihilated, and the face of the Lord subsists. Versus this, so annihilation belongs to creation. Subsistence belongs to God. So the path is one of undergoing annihilation of the of the self in order to for the, to subsist through God to reach the point where the human ego is no longer me. But rather the self-disclosure of God's presence within me. It is the point where God is saying, I am his hearing through which he hears, I am his eyesight through which he sees, right? This is the station of union. The, that can only happen when full poverty is achieved. Full emptiness of self is achieved. When one knows, you know, in much more than a theoretical way, that one is nothing. So poverty, you know, as I say, it's a major theme throughout uh, Islamic
1: spirituality, in general, generally. Well, Doctor Chidic, we've taken up a lot of your time, and we really appreciate uh, you telling us about this book. Um, obviously, we only got to scratch the surface, and uh, through the discussion, we really miss out on your your great translations. Um, but alas. <laughs> uh, I was hoping if you could just take a couple minutes and tell us some of the things you're you're working on now, or things that are going to be uh, coming out soon. Well, this book, of course, pushed me off in, this, in certain
0: directions. One is Mabody. I mentioned Mabody's commentary on the Quran. Uh, I have, when I was halfway through this book, I was, uh, I guess... Uh, word got out that I was working on, among other things, Meibodi for this book, and I was, uh, uh, someone asked me to uh, translate from Meibodi for the website at com. So I, I completed that uh, this spring, as a matter of fact, although the, the book version, it'll, you know, it'll probably it won't be out until next year. But the website version is now up and downloadable, and it's about seven hundred pages of Maywoodi. So this is, uh, in my mind, this is the absolutely the most readable Quranic commentary uh, mm-hmm. out there, and 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 including, you know, even if you're fluent in uh, the Islamic languages, I don't think there's any uh, Quran commentary which is so. It speaks to the heart so much. Most Quran commentary is very dry. You know, most of it is very dry and erudite stuff. And it's sort of analysis. It's nitpicking. And uh, although it's it's fascinating, but for, for scholars, basically, your you know, ordinary reader won't get much out of them. In fact, they get fed up pretty quickly. This is the type of commentary you pick it up to check one verse, and you just keep on reading because it just... Draws you in, it pulls you in. It's it's very very beautiful. Yeah, I'm happy with the translation. Uh, so that's as I say, it's about 700 pages, a uh, single space. So there's a lot of material. And, and right now, I'm I'm on a Guggenheim fellowship, as of September 1st, as a matter of fact, doing a. Uh, uh, a, a complete translation of Samani, the book on the divine names, because this has been for you know for 25 years I've been convinced this is one of the most important books in the Persian language, and although I've you know mm-hmm. spoken about it and whatnot, written a bit about it, I realized no one else is going to translate it. So uh, fortunately, I got support. Uh, uh, I wouldn't have you know, undertaken this without a fellowship, and but since I now have it, uh, this I think we can hope. You know, if everything goes well, health permitting, and all that, uh, that should be out a couple of years.
1: Great. Um, now, for for those that have been following your work for a long time, we're still waiting for a third book in the, in the <laughs> Ibn Arabi <laughs> Trilogy. Yes, so is that still in the works?
0: Well, you know how I don't know if you do know how things go. It it it's not quite in your hands. <laughs> it's something I would like to do, and something I've you know I have a huge file uh, in which I prepared the first draft of the, of the third volume. But it, the pull is not there. I keep on getting pulled off to various things. You know, you have to look at what's happening in the world and in yourself. And uh, the opportunities came up for these other books. And uh, that's another thing. You know, a lot of people are working on Ibn Arabi these days.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When I wrote my first book on Ibn Arabi, there are only a couple of, of uh, books that were r- really got into Ibn Arabi's thinking. Uh, and both of them were based on the Fasus, you know, one of Ibn Arabi's shorter works. So they were really in no way were they comprehensive. I set out to write it, do a comprehensive book after the first volume. But, you know, once it got <laughs> plenty long enough to be a book, I said, well, no, I can't be comprehensive. Well, I'll do it. Finish it off with the second volume. The second volume came out, and of course, I promised them there would be a third volume because uh, Ibn Arabi is impossible to exhaust. Uh,
1: so, we'll keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, but,
0: so, I would say a lot of people are working on Ibn Arabi now, and I, I don't feel the pull, you know, mm-hmm. from the the general field, for example, to uh, keep on going. I would like to go, I'd love Ibn Arabi. He's really so much fun and there's no one really who can compare to Ibn Arabi in the the profundity of the thought and the, the consistently high level of discourse Ibn Arabi is an author who even if you've been reading him you know, a couple you've read a thousand or fifteen hundred pages or more of, of him you keep on saying, oh Yes. Why didn't I think of that? It's just every time he, he's always new, he's always fresh, and when he explains something, it's as if you always knew it, but no one, had just, you know, it hadn't come out. But now Ibn Arab is explaining and saying, oh yes, that makes perfect sense. So this is one of the greatest things about Ibn Arabi, as far as I'm concerned, it's a reason I would like to get back to him. But as I say, these things are really not in one's own hands. We'll see how, uh, how the current book develops and what happens uh, once, inshallah, I finish it.
1: Great. Well, thank you again. We look forward to uh, all your future projects and uh, appreciate your time talking to us today. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. That was Dr. William Chittick speaking with me about his great new book, Divine Love, Islamic Literature and the Path of God, published with Yale University Press in 2013. Thanks again for listening to New Books and Islamic Studies.